Thanks for tuning in to the Bridge Church Podcast. Our mission is to be with Jesus and become like Him for the sake of the world. We hope the message today helps you to do just that. Let's dive in. Okay, so I want you to imagine uh, that you could host a dinner party for any famous person ever, right? You get to host a dinner party for any famous person throughout history. I love you. Just turn to a neighbor or type it in the chat right now. Uh, who would that person be? Just tell two or three people. If you could host a dinner party for literally anybody, just go and tell them real quick. Some of you are participating. Most of you are not. Okay, now, okay, so I want you to imagine, okay, you get the opportunity to host this person, whoever that is. Now I want you to think about the, the guest list. Who, who are you inviting to this like exclusive once in a lifetime opportunity to host this person? Just take a, a second or two, turn to someone, type it in the chat. Who, who are you inviting now to this very exclusive dinner party at your house? Go ahead and tell somebody, a couple people. Okay, great. Third question. Who are you hoping doesn't show up? Turn to your neighbor right now. I'm just kidding. Don't tell <laughs> so I want you to imagine now that this, this party is happening, and I imagine you have been planning the, the menu, and you've maybe repainted walls, and you have decor, and everything is going swimmingly. The guest of honor is enjoying themselves, and all the people that you invited could make it. Everyone's on their best behavior. Like, everyone's enjoying themselves deeply. And then... That person that you hoped wouldn't hear about the party shows up. And the whole thing just gets a little bit awkward. That is a little bit of a taste of the story that we are going to dive into today. What do you do when the party does not go as planned? And Jesus, as he often does, has a really interesting response. We're in uh, week two of a series we're calling Jesus and the Table. And part of what I said last week was that Christianity did not take shape around pulpits or on uh, altars or in books. It took place, it took shape around tables as people faced one another as equals, telling stories, enjoying food, sharing the good news of the gospel. It was the table that shaped early Christianity. Do you know what the most controversial part of Jesus' ministry was? I don't think it was his sermons or the casting out of demons or even the people that he called to be disciples. I think it's the people that he ate with. In fact, in the Gospel of Luke alone, Jesus is either at a meal, leaving a meal, going to a meal, or making a meal. If you read the Gospel of Luke and you don't get hungry, you might not be reading it well. So we're spending a couple of months exploring Jesus' table manners, the stories that he told, and the people that he ate with. Now as we read the Gospels, we see that tax collectors, murderers, thieves, and prostitutes were all strangely drawn to Jesus. Like when they met him... They loved him. When they meet Jesus, their sin seems to lose its appeal. Sin no longer like held them captive. And that ultimately is our prayer for all of us. It's not that you would like our sermons or our music or our ministries as good as all that is. It's that you would meet Jesus. And that because you've met Jesus, sin begins to lose some of its luster. And I think we would do well to wrestle with this today. If those who ran towards Jesus are running away from our churches, that at the very least should give us pause. The types of people that just seem drawn to Jesus are often the ones that want nothing to do with our churches. That should, at the very least, concern us. So for a little bit of context, in Luke chapter 7, 
Uh, right before this, he heals the centurion's servants. He raises a widow's son from the dead. And then he sends a message to John the Baptist. And in today's story, Luke 7, verse 36, he reveals three individuals. It's Jesus, a religious leader named Simon, and an unnamed woman. Here's where it begins. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at, what's the word? The table. Okay, so Jesus was a popular rabbi at this point, a popular teacher. Uh, but many of the Pharisees and religious rulers were not quite sure how they felt about him yet. They hadn't quite made up their mind. So one of the Pharisees decides to have Jesus over for dinner. So this was a meal, keep this in mind, at the house of a Pharisee. It's worth noting that Pharisees were kind of like the, they thought, the gold standard of living apart from like the Roman secular culture. They were supposed to be, at least in their minds, like the embodiment of like perfect spiritual purity. In fact, the term Pharisee gives you a clue. It literally means separated ones. That's what the word means. In fact, they were so concerned about the drift in their society that they would just simply have nothing to do with it. And oftentimes, these dinners between religious leaders and authorities were sort of semi-public. The dinner was served to the invited guests only, but anyone who wanted to kind of attend the dinner could. Now, that seems strange to many of us, right? Like, why would, why would you attend a dinner party that you were not actually allowed to eat? Well, homes in the time of Jesus, especially large homes, had typically sort of these semi-public areas, and some of the rooms would open up to sort of a courtyard space where outsiders could enter. So again, why would you even want to attend a dinner party where you were not actually invited to dinner? Well, in the first century, it's because it was actually sort of a form of entertainment. They didn't have TVs or iPads or cell phones, so people liked to come and just sort of like see what the rich and powerful were talking about to kind of eavesdrop on their conversation, which feels like kind of weird, right? Like good thing nowadays we don't gather with others and like listen in on the conversations of like wealthy and powerful people. It'd be weird for us, right, to sort of eavesdrop and listen in on the conversation of people we don't know, right? Anyway, okay. <laughs> Moving on. Most often these dinners, though, turn into a discussion about scripture and current theological and social issues. The religious leaders saw this as an opportunity not only to, like, educate the community at large, but typically to also kind of show off their great intellect and wisdom. Like, the invitation was uh, not just to inform them, but to sort of, like, brag about how much they knew. So it was common for outsiders to kind of drift in. It kind of took the form of a Greek symposium. And the other thing that's worth noting is these meals tended to take a very long time, which allowed for like robust, meaningful, thought-provoking conversation. Now Simon, this Pharisee, makes a pretty risky choice in inviting Jesus. Maybe he doesn't realize how risky it is, but Jesus at this point in Luke has already done a fair amount of distancing himself from the Pharisees. If you read Luke 1 through 6, like it's pretty surprising that Simon would invite him at all. So why does Jesus accept this invitation? There's a lot of reasons, not the least of which is this. Jesus loves tables. You see this all throughout the Gospel of Luke in particular. Jesus loves tables and meals. So much so, actually, that he's accused of being a drunk and a glutton. Now, the table in this environment, though, would have been much different than maybe what you're picturing or what we're used to. Like, we maybe picture a dining room table and chairs, right? That's not likely at all 
what they were sitting around. There was something in the first century called a triclinium. Here's a photo here to kind of give you an idea. And uh, it was sort of like a U-shaped table. And this middle space typically was so that servants could you know, come in and out, offering different food. And then you had people around the perimeter would be like reclining at the table on their left side. And I feel like a picture doesn't do it justice. I'll, I'll model it for you. Here's typically how they'd be laying. This is, I did not think this through. So they'd be kind of like lying on the ground, right? We got the... Look at you guys, look at you. And it, too much, sorry, that's gonna get tweeted for sure. So they typically would like recline on their left and they'd kind of prop up their chin like this and they would eat with their right hand. So I want you to really, some of you won't be able to unsee this for the rest of your life, but I want you to really picture this kind of posture. This will become really important later on in the story. They're reclining at this table with their feet kind of facing Outward. They would recline on the left sides with their feet facing away and they'd prop themselves up and, and then servants would come in and serve them food. This is the scene. And then this happens, verse 37. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. Now, if you're reading in a physical Bible or even a digital Bible, many of the captions probably read something like, Jesus anointed by a sinful woman. A caveat, I don't love that heading. Because that would describe every person. Any human that was anointing Jesus there would be a sinful person. A sinful woman, a sinful man. But she did have a reputation. Scholars agree that she was likely a prostitute. And she shows up, not by accident, and she shows up prepared. Some commentators argue that she might have even been there early. How strange must that have been? If she's known in this community for this particular line of work and she shows up at this dinner party in this home or this courtyard space early. Imagine what that must have felt like. The point is this, she doesn't want to miss the opportunity to do something. So she arrives, not only she arrives, she arrives early and not only does she arrive early, she arrives with something, not empty handed a jar or a flask of alabaster. Now it was common in Jewish culture for women to wear like a vial of alabaster around their neck. Uh, this is because access to baths and showers was limited. Often the necks of these bottles were very small, which required you breaking it open to get the perfume out. We don't know if it was one of those or a specific bottle. Either way, she's there maybe early and she comes prepared to do something. The story goes on. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. So she approaches the feet of Jesus. Remember where his feet are at. They're sitting in this U-shaped table, right? She couldn't have, like, snuck in. Like, everyone would have seen, not just a person, not just any person, th this particular woman with this particular reputation breaks from the crowd and approaches Jesus' feet. She bends down, and she begins weeping. Now, I don't know. This is conjecture, but I imagine this is where the whispers began from the other party guests. Ima imagine just for a second, like you're in the room, maybe you're at the table or you're in the crowd and people start shooting each other glances. Like what is, what does she think she's doing? What is going on here? Now, Simon missed a few significant hospitality protocols that would have been non-negotiable in the first century. The first is that anyone's feet would have already been washed by a servant. The second is that kisses would be offered upon arrival as a sort of way to honor them. And third, 
They would anoint the guest's head with oil as a sign of respect and welcome. All of these are missed by Simon. So when this woman bends down, preparing to give Jesus this gift, she likely saw filthy feet. And I imagine, again, this is conjecture. This must have all felt so surreal to her. Like, I can't even believe that I'm here. Like, what is happening? What is going through her mind in this moment? And her gratitude for Jesus, and we don't quite know why, but her outpouring of worship in this moment is literally washing the feet of Jesus. As she cried, I imagined, maybe others got annoyed by this, tried to shush her. In fact, the, the word that's used here for crying is clio, and it means to sob or to wail out loud. There is a word in Greek for like silent crying. This is not that word. It is the word for like, like you know, have you ever heard someone just like guttural, like it is just everything in them, Some, something is happening. That's the word that's used to describe the kind of weeping. And as she cries behind Jesus at his feet, the tears land on her feet. And I just love the way that there's a couple of artists that have depicted this over the years. I want you just to sit with these three images for a second. Just imagine that you're looking at this, watching this happen. This third one's my favorite. Like, what does that expression say? Just worship, gratitude. What, what must it have been like to be at the feet of Jesus? Now, remember, th this was a religious gathering. A, a woman like this would not typically be invited or welcomed at such an event. In, fa in fact, likely her, her dress was inappropriate for the context Likely her behavior was downright scandalized. Letting her tears fall on Jesus' feet, as you can see in this picture, was deeply intimate. And then she wiped them with her loosened hair. Typically the only time in that culture a woman loosened her hair was in the privacy of her own bedroom. It cannot be overstated, the intimacy of this scene between this woman and Jesus. This is not just simply an act of service, but of worship and a risky one. She's touching Jesus, which you would not do. She's at the table of elites. She's unbinding her hair. In fact, one commentator notes that both the, the oil and her hair for her were tools of the trade. And so in this moment, she's using these tools of the trade to worship Jesus in a way that would have scandalized everybody present. And here's what I don't want us to miss. Jesus could have said, hey, I, I appreciate what you're doing, but this is inappropriate. I see, I see what you're going for, but not here, not, not now. And yet, he doesn't. And so Simon's not sure how to make sense of all of this. At this point, you can be sure that no one around the table is saying like, uh, hey, could you pass the potatoes? <laughs> right? All eyes are now on this scene. They were not eating, and I, I imagine at some point they were maybe no longer speaking. They're just watching Jesus and this woman. They were shocked and likely offended, not only at this woman's behavior, but now at Jesus' lack of response. Isn't he going to say something? Isn't he going to stop this? In fact, Jesus seemed quite comfortable with her presence and her public display of affection. The truth is this, that when you invite Jesus to the table, you never know who's coming with. The story goes on, verse 39. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, hold on to that for a second. He said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him 
and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. And so Simon looks at this woman at the feet of Jesus, and he thinks to himself, <laughs> some prophet he is, right? He doesn't even know what kind of woman she is. And if he did, he most certainly wouldn't let her touch him like that. But in the very next verse, Jesus reveals exactly what kind of prophet he is. Verse 40, Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Now remember, Simon said something in his head. Jesus then turns to him and says, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. So not only does Jesus know what kind of woman she is, and not only does he welcome her worship of him, Jesus has just read Simon's thoughts. Jesus knows exactly what kind of woman she is, and he knows what kind of man Simon is. Now let's make sure we understand what's going on here. Um, I, my guess is most of you have not like gotten a denarii in your paycheck in a minute, right? It's not likely the currency that you're trading with. A denarius was the wage for one day's work for a laboring person. So in the first century, most people worked six days a week, which would amount to something like 300 denarii for a year. So 500 denarii, if I'm doing the math correctly, which is not likely, uh, is about 20 months labor. 20 months. Take a second and just figure out in your mind how much money 20 months salary would be in your existence. And ask yourself, would I be interested in taking 20 months salary and giving it to a lender that would extort me or rip me off? Now notice that when he says the money lender canceled the debt, the words, the words used here are forgave them. Which means that to forgive is to cancel a debt. But remember the money lender realizes he's not going to get his money back. He bears the cost himself. That is the essence of forgiveness. Forgiveness is not just simply saying, don't worry about it. Forget it. Forgiveness is saying, I no longer hold this against you and I'll assume the loss myself. It's canceling a debt. Jesus says, Simon, here's what you need to learn. Both of those people had a debt. Neither could pay it back. Your problem, Simon, is that while this woman has a debt, you also have a debt. But she knows it, and you don't. The point of the parable is this. If you understand how much has been forgiven, that opens us up to both receive and extend even more. Simon does not understand his need. He doesn't see himself as being in any kind of debt. In fact, I would argue he thinks his biggest need is to like intellectually figure out Jesus. And maybe that describes where some of us are at today. We think our biggest need is to sort of like cross every theological T and dot every theological I. I need to like figure Jesus out. But Jesus seems to disagree that that's his biggest need. In fact, the more honest we are about our needs, the more grateful we become. Here's what happens next. Luke 7, 44. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? Now, I do think that that's rhetorical because Simon most certainly saw this woman, right? But all he saw was her sin. Simon saw this woman, but all he could see was the reputation that she had, all the wrong he assumed she had done. Jesus saw something very different when he looked at this woman. 
He saw whatever woundedness and desperation led her to such a life. He saw the abuse and the exploitation that she had likely suffered. He saw the guilt and the shame that kept her trapped in a destructive lifestyle. Jesus looked beyond this woman's sin and saw her need. And he goes on, speaking to Simon, I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You do not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You do not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven a little loves little. So in this very unique, interesting, uncomfortable story, she's the one that welcomes Jesus, not Simon. And it's not even her house. Jesus is contrasting here this woman with your house. He says, I'm in your house, but she's actually been my host. Simon is likely only interested in Jesus for his entertainment value. The eccentric preacher and miracle worker was the must-have guest on the social circuit. He likely doesn't care for Jesus as a person, and my guess is that this woman could relate to that. She, she knew what it was like to only be used for entertainment purposes, to be exploited, to be looked at with the only aim of getting something from her. She was used to being used without respect. Simon decides that Jesus can't be a prophet because Jesus doesn't seem to have the God-given insight to see the character of this woman. But the real shock, the real shock of this whole story is that Jesus sees the heart of this woman and he sees the heart of Simon and he seems more disgusted with the heart of Simon than, that, than of the woman. His disgust lands in a very interesting direction for those who would be witnessing this. Difficult people, people outside of our familiarity or our comfort have a habit of exposing our hearts, don't they? I don't know about you, it's certainly true in my life. When someone is difficult or disappointing or disrespectful, don't our reactions reveal like what's really going on in our heart? I mean, Jesus himself says, man, you wanna know what's really going on in your heart? Pay attention to your words. It's an overflow of what's really happening beneath the surface. Right now, if you're thinking of how this story applies to someone else, you're likely in danger of being more like Simon. Whenever we look down on someone for being smelly or disorganized or lazy or emotional or promiscuous or socially inept or bitter, we're more like the graceless Simon that Jesus rebukes. Jesus, I think, would be saying to all of us, if you look down on others, you love little because you understand so little of what you've been forgiven of. At least in my life, and I won't put this on anyone else, I think I often lack gratitude for grace because I lack a grief for my own sin. Do you wanna know what is the easiest way for me to fall into bitterness or at least complacency or apathy? To like, to know nothing of the joy of the Lord is because I, I have lost like the grief and the weight of what it is that I have been forgiven of. And when that happens, friends, it becomes very, very easy for us to turn our nose up at others. How have you not figured this out yet? How are you still struggling with that? How are you still in that sin pattern? How are you still shackled to this? The difference between Simon and this woman is not just how they view Jesus, it's how they view themselves. Jesus, Simon has no sense of forgiveness because he has no sense of need. But this woman arguably 
That's her strongest sense. That's front and center for her. She's very aware of her need, which serves as a warning for us that just because you're good in the eyes of society does not mean that you're good in the eyes of God. Simon was an upstanding citizen. People looked to and respected, and Jesus says, you do not understand how much you're actually in need. And then this happens, how the story ends, verse 48. Then Jesus says to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this? Who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. I want you to imagine hearing those words from Jesus. Imagine that you're the woman. Imagine hearing from this rabbi, your sins are forgiven. Keep in mind, this woman has probably only known one of two responses, especially for men, lust or judgment. Chances are every man in her life had either exploited her or condemned her, including probably some of the men in that room. But Jesus saw her as a human being, a person who needed what every person needs. Love, acceptance, grace, forgiveness. So notice what Jesus doesn't do. He doesn't pull away in embarrassment to save his reputation. He didn't rebuke her for the life that she had been living, even though he knew all about it. He didn't correct her awkward expression of worship for being inappropriate or the wrong time at the wrong place. That's what the Pharisees in the room expected a religious person to do. That's how they expected Jesus to respond. Instead, he graciously receives her extravagant and unorthodox display of affection and worship. She worshiped Jesus arguably the only way that she knew how. And he rose to her defense when those around the table wanted to pass judgment. He dignified her behavior by describing it as worship of the highest order. How counterintuitive must that have been? Waiting for the rebuke to come and Jesus saying, this is worship in the highest order. And then he pronounced her forgiven of all of her offenses. That, my friends, is mercy. That is grace. That is unexpected kindness. So have you heard these words from Jesus? Your sins are forgiven. Not just sins, yours. Here in this room, in Columbia, Murray County Jail, watching online all around the world, have you heard Jesus say your sins are forgiven? Have you surrendered and trusted in the finished work of the cross? Do you know that to be true? My prayer, my deepest prayer is that you would know that to be true. So as we wrap, three, three observations about the kinds of tables that Jesus hosts. Because Simon was supposed to be the host, but he doesn't do a great job. In fact, you could argue the real host of all of this ends up being Jesus. And I would argue he's the best host. We want to aim actually for Jesus to be the host of every table that we're at. As we pray at this table as it is in heaven, when Jesus is hosting the table, there are a few things that are really important. Number one, come as you are. Number one, come as you are. Not as you're supposed to be, not as you wish you were, like really, truly come as you are. An alcoholic friend of Philip Yancey once said to him this. He says, when I'm late to church, people turn around and stare at me with frowns of disapproval. I get a clear message that I'm not as responsible as they are. But when I'm late to an AA meeting, the meeting comes to a halt and everyone jumps up to hug and welcome me. 
They realize that my lateness may be a sign that I almost didn't make it at all. When I show up, it proves that my desperate need for them won out over my desperate need for alcohol. God, may our church look more like that. Not a judgmental where have you been, but a joy-filled welcome home. I'm so glad that you're here. And for anyone who's maybe feeling like I could never actually truly come as I am because of all of the mistakes I've made, all the baggage that I bring, I'd say this, that God, when God called you, he already factored in your shortcomings. Some of us really need to sit with that today because you're giving God to know for him. Certainly he could never use someone like me. He could never call someone like me. You think he's unaware? When God called you, friends, wherever you are at, he already factored in your shortcomings. He already factored in your mistakes. Jesus knows your past. In fact, Jesus knows us best and loves us the most. That's really good news. There is nothing that is hidden from him. And yet he says, yeah, I would die for you. There's something really liberating about come as you are, but also something really challenging about this. This is why I think table ministry is so frightening for us. Because you really can't hide. <laughs> I think that's kind of the point. You really can't hide at the table. If there's tension, that'll eventually be very, very obvious. But those maybe who consider themselves Christ followers, we need to really sit with this. We cannot expect others to come as they are if we're putting on a facade. Saying or proclaiming, come as you are, but we're faking it, is disingenuous at best. And to be really blunt, sometimes the church can be the hardest place to be real. I mean, I hope that we are a place, that we are a community where you can be really, really honest about where you're actually at. The cross frees us from having to put on a front, pretending like we're more put together, more righteous, more holy, more successful than we actually are. And here's the thing that I'm kind of sitting with in this season. It's easy to love people in some kind of abstract sense, in some sort of general, it's easy. It's really, really difficult sometimes to do face-to-face, to do life together, to say, hey, come as you actually are. Like, what's really going on in your marriage, with your kids, with your soul? Now, for some of us, and I just want to add this as a caveat, some of us, there may be a, a season where you need to be anonymous. Like, maybe you need to just sort of, I get it. Like, I just, I just need some, some space. That there. That's healthy and wise at times, but don't let a season become a pattern. Well, honestly, this is why, this is why, by the way, we do everything that we do online. This is why we have cameras at all. Like our online space is a way of like setting the table. We know that the vast majority of the people that end up calling the bridge their home, they, they check this out online. Maybe for you, it's a season where you're like, I can't, I can't even pull myself out of bed, but I can log in online for a season. Or my grief is just too much to bear or my anxiety or my fear, whatever it is, like we're, we're setting tables. Wherever, wherever you're watching from, we're setting a table for you. Come to the table, come as you are. Secondly, come ready to give. When Jesus is hosting the table, we all have something to offer. We all have something to give. You all remember potlucks? Right? Man, what if, what if we approached like community and church life with sort of that potluck posture? Wait, you're a gourmet chef or you just brought a bag of chips. Everyone has something to contribute. 
Everyone has something to bring. In the kingdom, everyone has gifts to bring. We have to help unlock those gifts in and for others. Because worship is not just bringing the squeaky clean parts of us. It's not just like the up and to the right. It's the, it's the smile I painted on my face when I'm, I'm a champion. I'm a, I'm a winner. There's a reason. Something like two-thirds of the psalms are psalms of lament. They're crying out to God. God, I don't know what I'm doing. The bottom has dropped out. Bring it. It all belongs. And then lastly, when Jesus is the host, come ready to receive. At the table, it's assumed that not only is there something to bring, that we have something that we need. This woman was deeply aware of that and Simon was not. And sometimes don't we need reminders of our need? Jesus delights in being at the table with people who need something that only he can give. This is why he begins the Beatitudes with blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who realize that apart from him, we're spiritually bankrupt. That's actually a gift to us. That's a gift to us to recognize that I could never do enough to clean myself up. The scandal of grace is for those who recognize, man, left my own devices. It's not even close. What's fascinating to me about the lack of Resolution in Simon's role in all of this is that we don't actually know how his story ends. I kind of wish we did. And when we read this story, some of us are the woman, some of us are Simon, and some of us, maybe we're still onlookers. Maybe we're still in the crowd. Maybe you're here and you're like, I'm kicking the tires of this whole church, Christianity, Bible thing. Keep coming back, if that's you, by the way. We're so, so glad that you're here. But what would it look like for Jesus to use whatever tables you have or sit at to invite Jesus to your table? Might be a really beautiful farm table, custom built. Might be a coffee table at Starbucks. What would it look like to invite Jesus to whatever table you sit at where people can come as they are, they can discover what they can bring and they see their need to receive as well. This is what Jesus is doing in eating with the marginalized with the poor, with those with that kind of reputation because the marginalized cease to be marginal when they're included around a table. The lonely cease to be lonely. The alien ceases to be alien. Strangers become friends. Think about it this way. If you found a Rembrandt covered with mud, would you focus on the Rembrandt or the mud? Hopefully you'd focus on the painting. You would recognize it as a, a masterpiece with great worth. Eventually you would have to do something about the mud. You'd have to find an expert that could clean it up without damaging the painting. But your initial response, your heart's response would be enthusiasm for the Rembrandt. When that sinful woman walked into the room, Jesus saw a masterpiece, but all that Simon could see was the mud. Jesus saw a woman created in God's image, dearly loved. All Simon could see was her inappropriate dress and her embarrassing behavior. Jesus saw her potential and all Simon saw was her past. The sad thing is, myself included, Pharisees are still making those same mistakes. We see people's addiction instead of their pain. We see their inappropriate dress instead of their need for someone to notice them. 
We see their recklessness instead of their longing to be loved. We see their cursing instead of their fear that no one is hearing them. We react to their sin instead of responding to their need, but that's not how life in the kingdom looks. What's so fascinating to me is that Luke actually prefaces this story in Luke 7 by telling us that Jesus' enemies accused him of being, quote, a, a drunk and a glutton. It's an allusion to Deuteronomy 21, which describes how a rebellious, drunken son was to be stoned. Here's the crazy irony. Jesus does die the death of a rebellious son. Not stoned, but he hung on a cross for us and for every person that you have ever met. So because of that, because of that great, glorious news, let's make sure that people always know that they are welcomed as they are, that our table is really, really big, and that there is a place, always a place, with their name on it. May it be said of us. Thanks for listening to the Bridge Church's podcast today. If you want to be the first to know each time a new message is released, hit the subscribe button so you can stay up to date. We're so grateful we can release content that encourages our local body and followers of Jesus all around the world. If you'd like to partner with us and help fuel the mission of the Bridge Church, there's a link to give below. If you're curious about visiting or want to get involved, take a minute to learn more by visiting bridge.tv. All right, fam, thanks for listening. May we be with Jesus and become like him for the sake of the world.